Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Trevor. And together, we're We're Occasionally Interesting, interesting. the podcast where a couple travels the world interviewing the most interesting people they meet along the way. Sometimes it will be sweet. Often entertaining. Rarely conservative. Frequently informative. Occasionally occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting. Occasionally interesting. Wait, but why? Uh, and he, he sort of does like these sort of research projects and then presents them in a very interesting fashion. Of, like, it's kind of like a scrolling blog where he's in these kind of car- really childishly drawn pictures to demonstrate what he's talking about. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So he took like a year off to research. Three years. Three years to, to figure out how we've come as a society to where we've come to. Uh, and he's now released this really long but pretty amazing story of like from like prehistory to today how societies form like all bring bring all these like really interesting topics all into like one sort of yeah looking at it from like a biological perspective from a sociological perspective anthropological like every different framing of society and the individual and how we all why why we are where we are how we got to be that way, yeah. and what we can do about it. And we really like it, so we're trying to spread the word. Oh, yeah. that's great. And Jen is a beautiful reading voice, so it's always <laughs> oh, very pleasant to listen to when you do that. Anything Hopefully our listeners agree. so sweet to kill <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, yeah, I think you were just saying that to say that, like, we, we use the... Oh, my gosh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've never seen that before. I know, it's just, just like... <laughs> just kidding. Sometimes when I talk, it's just a flash of light, you know, appears for me. <laughs> Amazing. That's when I take myself seriously. Uh, um, yeah, I think he was just trying to say that um, it's, very, it's very varied. We use the podcast format predominantly to share the stories of the most interesting people we meet while traveling. Oh, cool. And then also use it to share whatever our agenda is, which is mostly uh, open your mind ask questions, and be good to the planet. (laughs) And be good to each other. And be good to yourself. Yep. So. Absolutely. So that's our podcast in a nutshell. You want to try to get like a little closer to me? Sure. This Uh, is our first time recording in a, well, in a really long time. This is, I think, is I think, yeah. Really long time, especially in person. But. Cool. The zone here. Yeah, yeah. The podcast workout. Anyway, all right. So, uh, would you? We hear you're writing a book Mm -hmm. right now, and then you have another one uh, in the works. I have one. I'm thinking of one other one. Yes, yes. So, what what is your book about, and how did you? Uh, The the first one. um, The first one is um, it's called Experiencing Wealth, and um, I am one of those people that believes that you teach what you need to learn most. So money has been such an issue for me in, in, in my mind and um, part of my self-identity. And so I really wanted to explore what that was about, why. And, um, you know, I, I've talked about it with 
many people and people tended to get value from it. So I thought I would um, articulate it. And um, the more that I did, I've been working on it for like five years. It just it just grew and grew and grew and as I evolved. And uh, so and then the next one I'm going to do is on uh, it's called The Way We Look. And um, because that was another thing that I noticed at whatever age I was at, I had all these issues with how I looked or how I thought other people looked and just the whole idea of, of uh, appearance. And it's kind of a play on word because it's the way you look as like the way you look at something and also the way that you think that you look. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way, we think there's a way we look. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of delusional because we look different for every person. It's an interesting perspective. What, what exactly do you mean we look different to every person? Well, I would say that you look very different to your husband uh, than you look to your mother or to your friend. Um, it's kind of hard to separate uh, how you feel about somebody for how they look. Uh, it kind of came out of that no matter what stage I was at in life, um, I didn't like the way that I looked in general. You know, like I'd see a picture of myself and I'd go, oh my God, I look so big and bald or, or whatever. And I started thinking about it. It's like, um, you know, why is that? Why when I look in the mirror, uh, am I not happy? And I realized that it all comes from expectation. And really you think it's self-deprecating, but it's really coming from a big ego because I think I should look better. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's ego. And uh, the other thing that I came up with was uh, I try to trace things back to a genetic and a survival mode, just if it's kind of my monkey mind, because it seems like some of the original programming all lives there. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that anything that came out of my body, I had to look at. So if I blew my nose, I had to look at it. If I picked a pimple, I had to look at it. If I go to the bathroom, I have to, if I get a haircut, you have to look. And I thought, this is kind of strange. Why is that? And what I came up with is, is that we're checking our health, you know? So we're always like looking and saying, hey, am I okay? Because that's how we survived. And um, I, I kind of have a fun thing that I do with people. I say, do you know how far back your ancestors go? Do you know? How far back they go? Yeah. Like, well, I don't understand the question. Okay. <laughs> they go back all the way. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? of course. So you are the offspring of literally millions, if not billions, of successful breedings. Yeah. And so that software that we have for survival is just, it's a very basic, psychological, foundational aspect of us. So what I realize is that when I look in the mirror, the context that I look at myself with is what's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, look, I have a pimple. Oh, look, I'm aging. I might not be as attractive or I might, you know, all of these thoughts that we produce come from a context. I have this thing that I invented where I believe that every thought that we have is the answer to an unconscious question. So like right now, I'm not having to think of the next word that I'm going to say because I have this question, how can I communicate this? How can I look good? How can I sound intelligent? All of those things. And so the words just kind of appear, you know, magically, you know, from my unconscious, my conscious goes, oh yeah, that's a good one. So. Uh, when I would look in the mirror, I realized that what I was doing is I was saying, what's wrong? You know, it's like if you have a pimple or something and you think, oh, it's going to wreck my day or yeah, I'd hate to be so superficial, but you, you might be able to relate. Um, but then you say to a friend, you know, it's like, oh, look, I have it. They're like, what? I don't even see it. They don't even know it, you know? And then you, and you know, also there's this idea 
that we have an entire government inside of us where we're constantly evaluating people and we, we punish people and we reward people or things. And it's like, for me, I take people to court. I'll represent the defense attorney and the prosecutor and the judge. And, you know, if I feel like I've been slighted, this person will be slightly, you know, punished and moved to an area where they, they don't get the full good graces of my, you know, vivacious personality. <laughs> and, well, okay, they've been there long enough. And then you just realize it's totally delusional. It doesn't even exist anywhere except for, for yourself. And other people may or may not know it, although we certainly have ways of, they don't know it, trying to communicate it. It's like, you know. So I started looking at this thing about, like with humans, and when I'm listening to someone now, I'm listening to what question are they trying to answer? And it seems very rare that people are actually trying to dialogue and communicate. It seems like most of the time people are trying to say things like, or they're trying to communicate, why is it not my fault? right? Like they feel a victim, like, oh, the economy's bad. And, you know, I never went to school. And so it's like the question that they're trying to answer that you didn't even ask, right? So it's really kind of a fun game to like, listen to people deeply and ask yourself, what, what are they really trying to answer? Or, or what's the question that they're asking themselves that they're answering and trying to get you to agree, you know, like to cover insecurities or, you know, why is it important to even look so great? Why yeah. is that such a big deal, right? So those kind of questions. I, I think I kind of went off. From it seems your, like, oh. I mean, from, from just thinking about it for a second, that the universal question is basically, am I okay? Right? Yeah, but you could even take it, um, there's even a deep structure to that, right? Like, okay for breeding. You know, like how important is it for us to pass on our, our genetic material? And, and, and then it's also the point of like, what, who determines okay, yeah. right? Like where did we get our ideas about how we're supposed to be? Um, one of my favorite stories is about there's two boys in the woods and one sees a bear running at him. And he says to his friend, there's a bear running on us. And his friend starts to put on his running shoes. His friend said, why are you putting on your running shoes? You can't possibly run faster than a bear. And his friend said, I don't have to. I have to run faster than you. And I think it's a very deep point. Like, what are we actually competing against? What, what, are, we, you know, what are we actually trying to get by this constant hierarchical, you know, I'm not good enough. It's like self-flagellation as a motivator. Only it doesn't really work. If you've noticed, the people that beat themselves up aren't the ones that are accomplishing things. So this is where the whole thing with, with wealth really fit in for me. Was I just noticed that people never seem satisfied mm -hmm. with their money. And I've been around some extremely rich people. I've been around some billionaires. And it's absolutely, you think, I know we, most of us have it that if we just had the money, that it would fill in that, that, that hole, that something that's missing in our life. Because we've been programmed, literally programmed since birth to think that, you know, that, that wealth is so important. And, you know, it is important up to a point, but you soon get to this point, like in the United States for a family of four, it's somewhere around $100,000, where they've measured and measured and measured and people's happiness after that, it doesn't change. If you're scrambling to get food and healthcare and all of that, it's a big deal. 
And that also led me in, and this, some of the things that I talk about in the book a great deal is, is about our, our delusions around money and the way that we as a society deal with money. Like we act like a dollar is a dollar is a dollar. And what I mean by that is like what a dollar means to you is very different than, than what a dollar means to somebody that doesn't have enough money to eat. And we act like it's the same, and it's not. And, and then you, you, we also apply that with what we think it would mean to us if we got money. Like watching Bill Gates interviewed, you know, he always gets tired of the question, what's it like to have so much money? Because he says after a certain level, it doesn't make any difference. And that's a really valid point because there's this huge gap between being homeless and in poverty and being middle class. That's a huge, but between being middle class and upper class and really wealthy, it's not it's not nearly as big a gap. Yes, it's a gap. But what we try to do, it seems like, is we focus on that small gap, right? Like if, like if a billionaire wants to go to Europe, he calls up his, his concierge and says, get the plane ready. Whereas an upper middle class person, you know, gets a seat on an airplane. And they both go to Europe. The poor person doesn't go to Europe. Yeah. Okay? And, and that's the point. And so I, I think that... It, that by focusing on, on lack or on a specific difference to define yourself belittles you and it keeps you from flourishing. When I was you know, in the process of writing the book, I wanted to articulate what I believe wealth is and wealth is flourishing. And so it's, I, I tried to really look closely at the blocks we have to flourishing. And it's like, our ability to survive is dependent upon a certain level of wealth. But after you get that, to keep running the same program over and over and over again and constantly feel like you, you're not there, and you know, it's like there's a joke around money with rich people, like which million will make you happy? It's the next one. And you know, we hear that, and I had heard it, but there's something about the way that we live in our society, particularly in the West, although Asia's catching up very quickly, is, is that our value as a human being is dependent upon having other people see that we're successful. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in, in your life, how is money? Uh, I mean, I'd say that for the most part, I, I grew up with uh, a lot of comfort and my parents made more and more money the older I got and I don't stress about it and that I am kind of like no matter how much or how little I have like there's there's some stress of just like I need to take action but there's no real emotional burden or or identity for me associated with it the way I see it for my parents and for so many people and I think to, that in one way, my parents are very happy that this is how I've turned out, but in another way, it drives them crazy that I'm not doing more to, to make all of this wealth when I have all of this opportunity. But, you know, we talk about it all the time of like, what would we do with another million dollars? What would we do if we won the lottery? 
and there's basically no changes to our lives. I mean, we'd both really like to buy some new clothes because we've been operating with the same clothes that we came to Thailand with two years ago and haven't bought anymore. But, you know, for the most part, it's like a bit more convenience and mostly live exactly the same beautiful yeah. life that we've created with pretty minimal funds. If there was anything around money that you would like to have like transformation with in your life, is, is there anything around it? I mean, I would definitely like to have some more of it. How much more? Um, I, I, I don't know. What the, I guess the, See, the goal, the goal I set for point. myself for this year was $100,000 okay. for 2020. To, I wanted to be making an average of $10,000 a month, okay. which seems very achievable, Okay. I believe. But, um, but? But I have not achieved okay. that because I, got, I I started working towards this, I think, very much, very well. I had more work than I've ever had before, more clients asking for higher prices. And I worked so much that I got horrible carpal tunnel and I, um, uh -huh. I haven't really been able to use my hand hardly at all for the last okay. three months. Okay. Uh, so it's kind of put a huge... So it's not your fault that you didn't make that money? I mean, no, it's no, still, it's not your fault. Obviously, I, uh, obviously, you did everything right. And no, you're I'm not saying this, I did got, everything. No, that right. is what you're saying. That's I'm what you're saying. I'm not. I definitely. I. I, it's, I still take responsibility. Uh, I mean, I'm. I'm not feeling as committed to my goal. <laughs> but yeah, your inflection is delightful. I. I promise, I'm not jumping on your case. But it, if you look at the question that you were answering was I started off really good and I was doing really great and then boom, crash and burn, right? Yeah. But in, in, in your explanation, there's like a reason, that's the reason why you didn't keep going, right? Yes. Because you're like saying, I was going, I was doing great, all of this, and now then this happened. Yes. So you take that and say, I was on good, I was doing good, I was a good girl, I was doing everything right, and then uh, this happened. So you became a victim of your circumstance. You do take responsibility. I really get that you're a responsible person and I only know that I can recognize these things because I do it on a moment by moment basis with myself. But it's like you have this idea like that that kept you from the money. Mm -hmm. And that's just an idea, right? Because you, you have such creative abilities and there's all kinds of different ways that you're still gonna end up making that 100,000 for the year. But it's like when I ask people the question, like, what goal do you have around money? They'll say, oh, I want to make more money. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, how much? And they'll say, I don't know. Enough so I don't have to worry. And I'm like, that is a brain virus. Yeah. Because there isn't enough money to make you stop worrying. And you know why? Because life has a 100% mortality rate. No. We die. And there's not enough money to keep you from dying. So there's always something to worry about. And it's like when, when we realize that, we really think that, and, and it's true that money can increase your survival. It can. You can hire better medical and all of that. But worrying about money erases all of that goodness, right? I mean, it's like the people that actually live the longest have really simple diets and simple lives and... You know, and they and they flourish, and I totally get your flourishing, and I wasn't trying to give you a hard time. It's, You're welcome to give me a hard time. Thank you, thank you very much, and, and vice versa. Please push back on anything. Um, but it's like it's we're automatically set that if we don't meet a goal, like that we're bad. You know, it's like that. Oh, that's bad. And the truth is, that's why we're afraid to set goals. 
you should set goals and you know what happens if you don't get them you make new ones yeah there's absolutely nothing around it and, and and so many times in my life it's been an absolute blessing that I didn't do uh, what I thought I was gonna do mm. and something turned out Question. even better Question. and what about you in terms of money sure well see I'm, I'm in, a, in a different situation I'm in a resource mode at the moment, so I'm currently making no money. Okay. So my, my goal is pretty low. Uh, <laughs> I would just like to be making some money. Okay, here, just a minute. Here, now you have your goal. Boom, you got some money. <laughs> so how much money, come on. How much money would you like to be making more than you're making now? Um, I feel like I would be, I would be pretty content with $10,000 a month. I think that sounds pretty reasonable. I think I could, I could do everything that I wanted to do and save and Is feel, that a, feel an additional to what her hundred her 10,000 or is that a combined 20,000? Um I'll, I'll go with I'll go with individual. Why not? Okay, okay. Why not? So so 10,000 a month. And 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 you have a way to do that? Uh working towards it currently. Okay. Uh, learning programming, which hopefully I can then parlay into uh, a nomadic experience and also a decent uh, salary. Absolutely. Very cool. And um, when are you going to start doing that? When, when, when is the 10000 a month going to be coming in? It's a very good question. I try. It depends on how hard I... Uh, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> what does it depend on? You saying it and making it happen. Not trying. I don't know if I'll necessarily reach the 10,000, but I'll start. We don't, but you see what you just did? Just for fun. You see what your brain just did? Like I didn't say, what do you definitely know you're going to make? And you're feeling on the spot now, right? Yeah. Okay. Which is, which is okay. But remember, power is the ability to bring intention into reality, right? Mm -hmm. So just, I'm just asking you what your intention is because it's this really wild thing that once your brain has an intention crystallized invisible hands start to help you it's just it's just I can tell you miracle after miracle around so many people that but our brains are afraid to say it because we don't want to fail you know we don't we 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 feel like oh I don't want to be that guy that says he's going to do it and does so we we don't do it but it's 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 all play Mm -hmm. it's it's all play and there's no wrong so it's like you don't have to work harder. You just have to do it. So when would you like to start? So with that like, in mind, then I will be making $10,000 one year from now, if not before that. Okay. So by a year from today, you will be averaging $10,000 a month. That's correct. Okay. And in three months, how much will you be averaging? 2000 2000 I got it. That's great. So in, in, in three months from now. And write it down, you know, and realize that when you say that I'll be consistently happy, you know, it, that, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You, you're already happy. You're already doing great. It's just going to flow to you. It's going to manifest in the most amazing ways. And you have no idea how it's going to happen. And you stay loose and you stay excited about it. There's something that I heard that I really liked. And so I memorized it. It goes, you will be what you will to be. Let failure find its false content in that poor word environment. 
but spirit scorns it and is free. For it masters time and conquers space. It cows that boastful trickster chance and bids that tyrant circumstance uncrown and fill a servant's place. For the human will that force unseen, the offspring of a deathless soul, can hew away to any goal, the walls of granite intervene. Be not impatient and delay, but wait as one who understands. For when spirit rises and commands, the gods are ready to agree. And I love that. I love my favorite part of that is this huge difference between humans that I see and people that I meet and people that I'm around. And the line that I love there is, it says to that boastful trickster chance, uncrown and fill a servant's place. For it's the people that take their circumstances and make their circumstances work for them, as opposed to having circumstances dictate their life. And it's, it's so hard. I mean, our language, you know, I love language, but our language in the West is, oh, you know, she made me really unhappy. It seems like it makes total sense that it has nothing to do with me. She made me unhappy. Oh, my boss just drives me crazy. It has nothing to do with me. And like my favorite word is responsibility. And I, you know, people say it a lot, but if you look at the word, it actually comes in two parts, right? Response, ability. It's your ability to respond. And if you don't take responsibility, you give up the ability to respond. And you, you listen to people. I, there's five major styles of operation that I believe that people operate in when they're not producing the results they want. And you can walk by somebody and you can just feel the energy. And you can feel it in yourself and you can even notice it in yourself. And that's, by the way, the most valuable thing is to notice it in yourself. But they're victim, resentment, regret, sabotage, and righteousness. And, you know, victim is... You can go by somebody and you can just feel all the energy. It's just all coming at them, you know. And it's like, oh, my wife did this, my husband, boyfriend, whatever. It's my kids. It's complaining, right? It's victim. And where did we learn it? We learned it when we were a kid and we were feeling really bad about something. And a parent came up and said, oh, it's not your fault. You know, they did it to you. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, I get a little bit of pain relief, right? It's like, not me. You know, it's like somebody else, okay. And, and we take it on. I'm so afraid to be actually responsible, to be sovereign in our lives. It's just fear. And then resentment. Oh, I don't like them. Some kids at school tease you. Your mom goes, oh, those are bad. Oh, okay, they're bad. So you go to school and you do the same thing that was pissing off the kids before. And, you, and this time you just write off that you're mad. Oh, I'm mad at politics. I'm mad at the government. I'm mad, you know, I don't like them. So you resent them. And then there's sabotage, you know, you're playing a game and you think you might lose, so you tip the board over and you, you, you kind of make goals that never really come together because then you never really fail. You know, so you sabotage the game because you don't want to be judged. You don't want to, you don't want to play and go, oh my God, I'm a failure. So people walk into meetings and the meeting will just be destroyed. You know, people that love chaos, you know, really, you know, have the, have that. And the other one is guilty, you know, you got in trouble and, and finally you said, I'm sorry, and you quit, you quit getting, getting in trouble. You know, you're like, oh, God, thank you. I found, I found a, a new style of operation. If I feel guilty about something, somehow that makes it better. You know, I mean, have religions built on it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. just feel really, really guilty. And somehow that's going to make 
the problems go away. And then the last one um, is, is the one that I have to deal with with myself the most is righteousness. I'm right, you know, and I have this, all this evidence. The only problem is, is that whatever you're dealing with, whether it's a person or a thing, if you're, if you're right, they're wrong. And you will never produce a satisfactory result with something that's wrong or a person. So if you want to get along with somebody, don't make them wrong. Even though it can be clear to you as possible, it doesn't work because nobody wants to be wrong. And by its very definition, you will never produce the results that you want when what you're dealing with is wrong. And people go to war, people die, people destroy relationships with their parents and their family over being right. And there's a great story about Skinner, uh, B.F. Skinner, uh, psychologist, uh, uh, behavioral psychologist. He says if you put uh, a mouse in a, in a maze and you put cheese in the fourth tunnel and you do it enough times, he'll go to the fourth tunnel. If you put the cheese in a different tunnel, he'll go to the fourth tunnel, get pissed off, go back to the fourth tunnel. But pretty soon he'll start looking in the other tunnels. He said the difference between a rat and a human is a human will consistently, for the rest of its life, go to the fourth tunnel. Because for a human, it's more important to be in the right tunnel than getting the cheese. And how many times in our lives we've seen that we've run the same behavior that we learned when we were kids. We developed strategies that got us through. We survived. So to our brain, survival means success. So then we do the same thing over again and, and over again. And we think it's the right way, but we're not getting what we want. And so what I'm about is new possibilities. And being willing to look at things newly, different, without judgment, without anger, without belittling, both in yourself and in others. How do you begin such a grand process? Okay, you I articulate what you mean by that? Like this is such a, this is like the fundamental human problem. And how, in a moment Because fundamentally moment, I'm a human. And I really am trying to work on this stuff. And I believe that I've had, you know, I, I've just gone through so much in my life and I really had to take, take a real appraisal of myself. And I'm one of those people that really tends to overthink things, probably, I think would be one way. And so I wanted to get down to the bottom of it. And I've taken a lot of courses and read a lot and said, I, I want to live an invented life. Um, and I believe like that the way that I was raised in America, I'm 62, graduated from high school and I was 76, and I just saw so many things that had great ideas, but then they petered out. And I wanted to know what, what can I do to have an adventuresome, uh, interesting life. It's like uh, somebody said, and I really liked it, that Shakespeare always wrote plays about enlightenment. And he used two vehicles. He used comedies and tragedies. And the only difference in the comedy and the tragedy was at what point in the play the enlightenment took place. In the tragedies, it was at the end of the play, Romeo and Juliet. You know, we've lost what was most important to us by a petty feud among, with our neighbors. So we, we, we lost our very offspring, the, the thing that was most important to us. And at the end of it, it's like they realize it. And it's like a curse on both of your houses. Where in the taming of the shrew or much to do about nothing, they kind of realize the chaos of life. And they get enlightened at the beginning. And then, then it's, it's very funny how things work. And so I wanted to have a travel comedy adventure kind of movie. So I said, okay, well, let's get down to the truth as close as I can. 
And that's where I started realizing it. I remember certain things like I moved to Kauai when I was 19. I never went to college. I graduated from high school in three years and couldn't wait to get out. And so I was in California and I moved to Kauai, which, you know, uh, that long ago was just this amazing, idyllic place. And I would, you know, start a business and I would think like, I wonder how the people back home are thinking about me, you know? Okay, I was stoned on a beach. And I would take this out. And then one day I just looked at it and I said, what the hell are you doing? It's like, there's no such thing as the people back home. You know, I acted like it was real, you know? It's like, oh, I wonder what people think of me. And like, like I said, with language, we have this thing. And I, and I realized there's, they don't get together and have a committee. And like they, they look at how I, how, how is Craig doing? Can we all agree? And it's like, I realized how much of my life was lived with these absolutely insane algorithms that were completely self-invented in an interior landscape that nobody else knew anything about. And I acted like it was totally real and made sense. And you know, and it did to me. And I, and I kind of realized that it, for me, it can be summed up within the West. We consider disillusioned a negative, right? It's like, oh, I became disillusioned in my relationship. Well, disillusioned, according to my understanding, would mean you got to the truth. Yeah. But, in, but we're like, oh, no, I want to lie. I've got to go get another lie, right? Become disillusioned with my job. I realize I'm not really, you know, that, you know good at it. So I, I better go find somebody who will tell me I'm good at something and find another delusion. And it was like, I just kept going deeper and deeper. And I remember like on one time I, uh, I sold a business and I immediately spent all the money. You know, I was like 22, 23 years old, and I had thought I was doing so great. I started this business and made money and sold it. And, and I, then a friend said that, I said, I need a job. And he said, okay, you can work for me. And he had a video arcade, right? So people would give me dollar bills and I'd give them quarters. And I spent an inordinate amount of time worried about who was going to come in and see me. Because I had, had been a business owner and I had hired and fired and now I'm working in this video store and I oh mean, God, how embarrassing. So I said again, Craig, you're an analyzing kind of guy. Who are you afraid of? First of all, I wasn't, didn't think of an individual, right? It was just like, oh, someone's going to come in and see me. Then I go, who are you afraid of? So I made a list of all the people that I would be afraid would come in and see me. And I, then I looked at them and I said, what do they all have in common? I said, I don't like them. <laughs> and I thought, well, now that's really funny because people that I loved and my family and my friends and pe cool people are like, Craig, you're doing this, you're doing that. We don't judge you by that. But people that I felt super competitive with that I didn't like very much. So I thought, well, now this is really interesting. I'm spending an amazing amount of time worried about who I might come in that I don't like and what they might think of me. Delusion, <laughs> completely a fabrication inside of my mind and I acted like it was real. So I thought, oh, this is just insanity. So I thought, okay, I believe that communication is a universal solvent. And I believe that by telling and getting to the real truth of things, things disappear. You know, and they disappear in dialogue, whether it's a dialogue with yourself or with other people. And that's where I wanted to go, and that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> so, so how did you actually start, what is like the details of how you started this process of changing your thoughts and the way you framed things? 
Well, it's a hard question. I've taken a lot of courses. I've done a lot of seminars. I've read a lot of books. So I think at, at different times in my life, it, it just was a process. And my mom says I did it earlier. So, I mean, I've always been one that was like trying to, you know, I, I, one of the things that I heard that I liked is people tend to either be more about truth, beauty, or goodness. And if you listen to what's important to somebody, it's kind of like the way the universe knocks on your door. For some people, it's goodness, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for me, it's truth. If I'm on a bus and I hear people talking in a conversation and I hear one of them make a mistake, I feel it's my, you know, absolute duty to point out that, no, that wasn't Napoleon and it wasn't Russia. You're talking about his brother who went to, you know, Mexico. And it's just, and my brother who is, is about goodness. So he'll tell a story about something good, you know, and it'll be, I'll be involved in it. And it Often it's making me out better than I actually was. And so I'll say, oh, Brian, I'm sorry. That, remember, that didn't happen like that, Mom. And he goes, what are you doing? Why are you messing up the goodness of my story with truth? You know? <laughs> and other people are more, they're more beauty, and they're like into their experience. Like for me, if I go to a museum with somebody, I want to tell the truth about it, right? Oh, my God, did you know that this artist was... And a beauty person, you know, can you quit talking to me and let me have my experience? I always know when I'm talking to a beauty person because as a truth person, I'm like, could you get to the point, please? You know, can you tell me, you know, what the truth is? And they're like, no, it's the experience of it. And it took me a long time to realize that they just weren't flaky, (laughs) that they actually had a whole different operating system. And that's really fun to learn. You know, it's really fun to explore how there's all these different people that really relate we we so genericize ourselves you know and it's like we we think everyone is like us you know we think we see the truth you know and and it's like when you realize that you know reality is a function of agreement you know it's the things that we we relate to that we agree about that allow us to have real affinity with each other and if you don't have that agreement then you don't you don't understand and you can't relate so having, having um, a very important thing to answer your question is, is that uh, this leader of the seminar one time said, you know, somebody said, you know, I'm finding out so many things about myself that are really giving me trouble, like, you know, the dark side and the shadow and about, like how we can be so destructive and antagonistic and self-righteous and, and just fuck up so bad, right? Yep. And he goes, and when I'm discovering this about myself, it's so hard. And he goes... I can just tell you that the way that you should hold yourself that is most effective is to hold yourself as a young person with whom you're very fond. You know, and I thought about that because I love kids and I'm like, I'm so understanding with kids. You know, it's like, it's okay, don't worry about it. But with myself, I can have a tendency to be so harsh. Mm-hmm. So I think part of the, the real thing is, is starting to hold yourself as you would a child with whom you're very fond because you are that child. That's where our original programming was. That's where our innocence and our beauty and who we are. And when we look at children, we can be so much more forgiving than we are with adults and, and particularly with ourselves. So I think that's just, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a wonderful thing when you can do that. Um, and as you can tell by now, I like stories and there's another one that I really liked a lot. Um, and it's about King Arthur. King Arthur got really, really sick. And he put out a decree throughout the land that anyone that could heal him, 
he would grant them any wish within his power. And many people tried, no one was successful. And one day, this very unattractive witch uh, came in and she said, I can heal you. And he goes, well, what do you want in return? She says, I want to marry him. And she points at Sir Galahad, his young, beautiful friend. And the king says, I can't ask him to marry you. Look at him and look at you. And, she, and he said, he said, I will gladly marry you and honor our relationship, our marriage, for all the days of our lives, if you can heal my brother, my king, and my lord. And with that, she rolled this apple down the aisle. King Arthur picked it up and is instantly healed. Well, the next day, everyone comes to the wedding chapel to see if, if he's going to marry her. And she shows up, and lo and behold, he shows up, and they get married. And they go up into the wedding room. And she goes into the bathroom, and she comes out, and she's this incredibly beautiful woman. And she said, since you kept your word to me, and since you were willing to honor your king and your friend, by marrying me, I will give you your choice. I will be the beautiful woman that I am now when we go to bed and in our house, and the witch when we go out in public among your friends, or I will be the witch when we go to bed and the beautiful woman when we go out among your friends. Up to you. And he thought about it for a second, and he said, you know, this is really so much more about you than me. I return this choice back to you. And she said, since you've honored my sovereignty as a person, I will be the beautiful woman all the days of our lives. And that, that, that really runs deep for me in how we approach wealth, on how we approach ourselves. You know, how much of wanting money is to have other people, how much of being with an attractive person or being attractive is to have other people judge us and evaluate us so that we can kind of get some reading on how we're doing as a human being. And when you can actually take sovereignty over saying, I am who I am because I am who I am, and I'm going to be responsible for that, and I'm not going to be as dependent on others for approval and validation as a human being, then I'm just going to really make my own way. And there's something that happens. There's a self-actualization that happens with that. And the journey is never the same after that, as I think you're aware. Because I get that both of you have that. Sometimes. Comes and goes. Yeah. yeah. Comes and goes. Yeah, absolutely. It comes and goes. And then comes back again. Right? Yes. And, uh, but th there's, there's transformation. And, uh, you know, then, you know, the Buddhists have a saying, you know, it's before enlightenment, it's chopping wood and carrying water. And after enlightenment, it's chopping wood and carrying water. You know, it, it doesn't mean that all the, you know, it's like with sobriety, you know, I, I, I have met people that, you know, have, have gotten real sober. And I'm like, so what's it like? And they go, you know, it's not that you walk around happy all the time, but at least I'm able to work on the problems that I need to work on, and they stick. Whereas before, it was like I was taking a painkiller uh, for cancer. So instead of getting at the cancer, I'm taking, you know, a pain pill, so I'm not dealing with it. So when you open up this door that we're talking about today, it's not an easy path. It's, it's really not easy at all. But for me, it's worth it. Because the alternative 
is being in a, in a kind of a state of uh, somnambulism, the condition mm -hmm. of waking sleep. Mm -hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm here on this planet to participate in the mystery that is this life. And so I can, I can go around the edges and have ideas, but it's really just totally finding it mysterious. You know, it's like that doesn't box us in, that allows for infinite possibility. Mm -hmm. It's like the people that scare me are the people that think they have all the answers. You know, those are the scary ones. I mean, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, Dear Jesus, please protect me from your followers. <laughs> you know, it's like these people that think that they have all these answers and you, and you read the same books and the same literature and you're like, it doesn't say that at all. I, how did you get that, right? I mean, crazy stuff. He's got a good look on his face. Yeah, he's got he, the thinker. He's preparing he's, he, a question. He's on the <laughs> thinker stage. Yeah. Yeah. So like, there's there several points where I, I had thoughts. <laughs> now they're all yes. have moved on. Particularly when you get put on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Do you want some technique? Yes. You were asking me about how to do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the techniques that I learned, and listen, you, you don't have to take this as true. I actually believe it's true. Like, I really, really believe it's true. But you can just pretend it's like a game or it's like not really true, but you can try it out. And the most important thing that I've learned is this thing called recreation equals erasure. Equals erasure? Erasure. Recreation equals erasure. So that if, let's pretend, I'm a magician and there's this soda water bottle that I've just put there, right? And I'm a magician. Boom, and I create that. And you're an equally powerful magician. And you say, you know, I really like that bottle. I like, I like it in the same time, in the same space that that one is in. So I'm going to recreate the exact same bottle. Molecule for molecule, atom for atom, in the same time and space. What happens? The previous one was erased. Say again? <laughs> the previous one that you had made is now erased and replaced by... So, so would it replace it? So can any two things occupy the same time and space? No. So yours would disappear also. Boom. It goes into some other universe. It goes into some other reality. No two things can occupy. So it wouldn't be like a replacing. It would be a transformation where it disappeared. Do you get that or no? I think so. Okay. What are the implications? Okay. So when I'm talking and you're nodding your head, right? This is what we do, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, right? So what's going on? I'm creating a communication. Not just the words that I'm saying. But the context is all the words that I could have said and didn't say. So it's actually creating this whole DNA with this whole universe about you and I and all the commonality that we have coming from a similar culture and a language and television and movies and all of this common experience of be about being a human being. I create a communication and you, we commune, right? And you recreate the communication and it disappears. Now, if you ever tried to talk to somebody who was shaking their head no, it's very difficult, okay? Because they're not willing to recreate what you're saying so it doesn't go away and you get stuck with it. In the same way it works with ourself. 
If you think about how many parts of your life you resist having it be the way that it is. So I believe that we're creating our life the way that it is, right? So if, if we're a magician and we've made a creation, but we go, no, I don't like this. I don't like how much I weigh. I don't like how much I, how my age is. I don't like how much money I don't have. I don't like, I, I don't like the way they behave when they, you end up as a creative magician, making it stronger. In other words, and if you want it to disappear so you can create something new, have it be the way that it is. Because it disappears. Now, you can, you can recreate it again if you want. But if you think about it, look at what um, psychotherapy is, right? Psychiatrists go to, go to incredible educational links to learn how to go, oh, your mother. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, without, to, to, to not project something on. So they're there just to listen, really listen. And let's face it, we think that they've heard so many things that we're not going to shock them, right? So they're trained not to be shocked. It's because when you're shocked or you don't approve, you don't recreate. So when you're around somebody that lets you be 100% who you are, then you're, you, can, you can enter new possibilities. And... It's, it's an, and this is the other thing. It's with ourselves. When we don't have our lives be the way that it is, we, you get what you resist. and You find what you're looking for. So if you feel like that you're fat, you're going to notice all the ways people are looking at you and think that they're looking because you're fat. And you're going to notice every outfit that you're not able to get or whatever. You, for me, this is a holographic experience. You want to find love, there's love. You want to find hate, there's hate. You want to find beauty, there's beauty. Whatever you want to find in this physical universe is there for you to find. Now, what do you want to create? You know, and this is how you can do that. And look at, look at um, people going to confession. You know, for Catholic people going into a room and having a, a religious spiritual figure just here. Just listen. I have friends that when I'm feeling insane, I can say, can I just call up and tell you? Now, don't take anything I'm saying seriously, but I have something I really need to just communicate. And then they get it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, yep. And all of a sudden, I'm over it. Like, I think one of the beautiful things about kids is if they're pissed, they're pissed. If they're happy, they're happy. If they're sad, they're sad. They allow themselves that because they haven't learned that they're supposed to repress. And the minute that you repress, you start adding this baggage and baggage and baggage. And then you try to make more money. <laughs> so that, no, you do, people do, I do. You try to get like, what's going to cure that part of us that doesn't feel well, right? It's like, I can talk to people that are strikingly good looking, right? And it's, and it's like people that have money. You know, people want a piece of it. You know, they, they don't like you because you're you. They like you because they think you're going to make them feel better. And people are going to go, oh, look at the good-looking person I'm around. That must mean I am somebody. You know, and it's like, oh, look at this car. I mean, you know, wearing a, a, a platinum Rolex and a, and a peacock having feathers, are the, it's the same shit. Mm -hmm. You know, look at me. Aren't I something? What's the deep structure of that? I'm not good enough. You know, and if you come from a deep structure of I'm not good enough, there's nothing 
content-wise that you can do that's going to fill that empty context. You know, there's three simple words. Be, do, and have. Simplest of words. If you say to somebody, what would it take for you to be happy? Most people will tell you something they have to have. Well, I want to have a new car. I want to have a new wife. I want to have a new girlfriend. I want to have a new boyfriend. I want to have something. They think be is a function of have. When it's exactly the opposite. First you be it, then you do it, then you have it. You know? It's like, you know, so many people that have won the lottery and their lives turned to crap. You know, we all, you, know you hear those stories. It's true because they don't know how to be wealthy. They have wealth, but they don't be wealthy. Whereas other people, you watch them and money just starts to flow to them. Mm-hmm. You know, wealth starts to flow to them. One of the things that I like to ask people is like for you, for money, I, I, let's do it with you. For, for money in your life, how would you describe, if money were a person, how would you describe them? It's a difficult question to answer. How would I describe the person that money would be? Yeah, like if money was a person in your life, what adjectives would you use to describe them? Uh, fun. Uh, nourishing. Nourishing, okay, <laughs> yeah. got it. I don't know how that exactly works as a person, but... Um, well, what else? Like right now you said com- you're not comforting. making money, right? So you're not making money right now, right? Right. You said that. So what about that? What about that? Yeah. So are, are they hard to predict? Are they mysterious? Are they determined? Are they temperamental? You know, I mean, it's just like if you're looking at your situation, how would you, how would you describe it? Because if it was like a person, they've kind of left for a while, right? Right. Okay, so... Yeah, absent. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah. So they, they, they're, they can abandon you? I suppose so, yes. Okay. Um. So on the spot. I'm so sorry. I wish you could see the shades of red his face. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know. I can't think of any more adjectives. Okay. Um, are they honest? Yes. Okay. Are they manipulated? Suppose they they can be. Yeah. Okay. Are they dominating? Certainly has the potential. Well, now, come on now. It's, we're talking about money in your life. It's not potential. This is the money that I know. No, no. The money. The money. We, we're just inventing this, right? It's all right. made up, right? So we're calling. If money was a person in your life, how would you describe them? You're so glad I'm not asking. This. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, like, I would, in, in my life, I feel like money is a kind of fun person to be around, right. generally enhances the mood, is uplifting, is uh, kind and generous, uh, is optimistic. I love it. See, and, that, and that's why you have such a good relationship with money. A lot of people are like dictatorial, hard to know, unpredictable, um, you know, just as completely uh, kind of abandoning you, um, dominating. And yeah, then you always want to say, if somebody described you like that, would you want to hang out with you? Yeah. You know? I mean, it's, it's, it's like... Yeah, I would not say that's the relationship I have with money. No, I can tell. You guys are bright and cheery and you create wonderful environments and... You, you know, you have enough, you know? 
And, and it's, it's really, that's flourishing. You know, and it's like I've been around literally billionaires who didn't want to talk because everyone wants a piece of them. You know, mm -hmm. it's like I wrote, reached out to shake, you know, somebody's hand and they were like, ah, you know, like human contact. And I'm just like, wow. Mm. You know, and, and it's like I had spent so much of my time saying, if only, you know, that little voice in your head, if only this, if only that. So what were you just saying right before uh, <laughs> that I said I, would, I wanted to hear what Jen had to say about that? You want to record I have, a, uh, you want, you want I have a, a feminine energy. <coughs> you um, have a feminine energy? I said particularly around money. <coughs> you want to start it? Oh, so that's, that's yeah, in going. particular to money. Okay, well, no, I was, in general, I would say also, you have, you have a very soft, sweet side to you. It's like I said, you're taking the kitchen, the chickens in the other room and setting them up and you're very nurturing and you want to take care of everything. And it's like there's study after study, and this is unfortunate, I don't mean this in a bad way, but people that, that are more successful at making money also are willing to be disagreeable. You know, it, it's, it's like you, you want to stand up for yourself and even when somebody doesn't like it, sometimes you have to say, you know, like I have my own business, I've got like 500 employees, and there's times when I have to tell people things they really don't want to hear. You know, and I figure I'm a better person to do it than somebody else. But it's in my nature that I'm confronted because of my truth thing. Whereas I said for you, I feel you're more of a goodness person. So around money, it's like when we started asking about what the qualities of money were, you almost didn't want to say anything bad about money because you didn't want to offend money. You know? <laughs> it's like, well, he's okay. You know, he doesn't really abandon me, but I haven't seen him in a while. You know, but you didn't even want to talk bad about him. You know, and I love goodness people. I mean, thank God you're on the planet. But just realize that when it comes, you know, around money and business and stuff like that, you might want to. You might want to be a little bit, uh, have, have some different strategies. It's all about strategies. We learn all these strategies when we're younger and, and it's genetic and, and how we were raised and all the things that worked for us when we were a kid. And um, in the areas where you're not getting what you want, you know, then you can do something different. You can, you can model somebody else. Modeling is just like uh, the largest part of our brain is how to model behavior. So if you see somebody that's doing something in a way that you like it, Ask all kinds of questions about it and learn to be like that, you know. Amen. Amen, yeah. <laughs> hmm. which, which, which out of the three are you? Truth. Yes, definitely. <laughs> which out of the three do you think I am? I, yeah, I could see goodness and, and beauty. I think you alternate between goodness and beauty and that you want to be truth. <laughs> I like that. And you know what? I've seen that also. He, does have, he has that beauty side, too. Yeah. It's like, um, uh, it's, just, it's just really interesting for me with, with the different ways that, modalities that people think in. You know, um, there was another, I studied neuro-linguistic programming, and you know, where, you know, it's like people tend to be either auditory or kinesthetic or a visual. And I'm almost totally auditory. You know, it's wow. like I don't see pictures in my brain. You know, it's like I, I when I, I built this hotel and people were like, oh, you had great vision. I'm like, I had no idea it was going to turn out like this. <laughs> it talks to me. Then I change this and I do this, and then I'm surprised at how it ended up. That's wild. I'm, yeah, other people see a finished product. I don't at all. 
Uh, we, we were talking about this a lot yesterday, uh, just of, like learning styles and and schooling and stuff. And that I feel I was so grateful that when I was nine years old, I was put into gifted support, and then very quickly the gifted support teacher met with my parents saying they thought a mistake had been made and that I should not be in the program. And then they were working to figure out what was going on and discovered that I am entirely visual. And yeah. she was talking and it was just, I couldn't do it. And as soon as she started writing things down or I started yeah. writing things down or there was any visual aid that like I was the smartest one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I can totally see that. I mean, now see, I just said I could totally see that, right? Because if you're going to be visual, I'm going to present things in a in a visual manner. I remember I was, I was married before and my wife um, was totally visual and totally auditory. And she said, um, she said, oh, I was watching the radio on the way home in the car. And I go, you don't watch a radio, you listen. And then that night, um, there were these lights going off and I go, oh, look at those lights, they're beeping. She goes, lights don't beep, they flash. And I was like, oh, geez, that's right. It, it's fascinating with kids and you know, we're still learning that so much of our education has been trying to force you into a particular, it's like I say, genericizing. And we're all so different. And it's in our differentness, thus, that we can have a commonality. You know, it's like that's what really can bind us, is realizing it's so, we're so individualized. You know, another thing with um, um, my book, uh, Experiencing Wealth, it's like I watch this guy and I, and I just am fascinated by this, that we have conflated pleasure and happiness in our society. And it's two totally different chemical reactions in the brain. Pleasure is dopamine, happiness is serotonin. And, they, and they're completely different in the way that they operate. For dopamine, when you get too much dopamine, it's, they start, the, your brain automatically starts burning the receptors for the dopamine. And when you get uh, happiness, you get content. It's just, just like you don't need to produce as much. And it, it's so funny because you can, if you question whether something is a pleasure or it's happiness, you can tell whether you, get, you need more and more and more of it. So, and in our society, one of the reasons it's so conflated is because from a marketing standpoint, because you can buy pleasure. You know, if you go out and buy a new car, it gives you pleasure. But that same new car in two months isn't gonna be enough. You know, if you go, you know, go out shopping and buying purses or wallets or shoes or whatever, after a while you need more and you need more. That's a pleasure thing. Cocaine, pleasure thing. You know, you need more. Sex can be a, definitely a pleasure thing where, you know, you, you have an exciting partner and you, everything's great and then you need to do more and then you get a little bit farther out, you get a little bit farther out and then all of a sudden you need somebody else if you're not careful. And so it, it's, it's very, very different with happiness. Because happiness, you don't need more and more and more of it. You know, there's this, this six-year-old boy in my life, and he is such a delight. Every night I can read to him. And I don't, if I read to him a half hour, I don't need to read 45 minutes, you know, the next day. I am just as happy doing the half hour. And if you want to know about flourishing and you want to know about wealth, focus on what makes you happy. It's not that pleasure isn't important. Pleasure is important, but don't let it fool you. I, you know, I got, I made a lot of money uh, a while back and in my life, and I started trying to go to fancier restaurants and nicer cars and nicer, and it just is this endless masturbatory 
circle of not being satisfied because you got to do more. It's like, okay, this was good, but what about the next? And men are particularly bad. It's kind of a testosterone poisoning. If you've ever made a certain amount of money to go back a little bit, it just feels like hell, you know? And somebody said that if, if Bill Gates woke up with Oprah's money, he would want to kill himself. <laughs> you know, it's like we, we have this, th these hierarchies that we're always making and holding ourselves to. And you, you want to make more, you want to make more. And then it's like, well, I don't want to make less, you know. And then all of a sudden you're, you're in the end product. It's like I had uh, my, I, I was married to this woman before and she just got me so good because she goes, you know, you're very negative about my negativity. And I was like, shit, she just totally nailed me because we both end up being dissatisfied. Right? I mean, I'm like, well, I have every right. Look at how negative she is. But I'm being negative. And, you know, so it's, it, it's like with my brother, you know, in a car, he gets totally irritated with traffic. And then I get totally irritated with him. And I'm like, the funny part is we're both in the same exact spot, both feeling like we have a totally reasonable reason for it. And, and that's how it is with money. It's like, oh, you don't understand. I'm, I'm used to having, you know, this kind of wine and this kind of food, and I just don't have that anymore. People want you to feel sorry for them. And I'm like, no, I don't really feel sorry for you. Sorry. But you don't know what I'm used to. I don't care what you're used to, you know. If I'm going to feel sorry for somebody, it's because their mother has cancer and they don't have, you know, enough money for a good medical program. You know, and, and if you look at it by any reasonable standard, you know, if you're in the West and you're lower middle class, you're wealthier than 0.0000% of the population of the planet. And yes, we have real problems with, with plagues and with, you know, global warming. It is still the best time to be alive that there's ever been in the history of the world. There's more people that have more access to health care. There's less people that live on a dollar a day. There's, you know, all of these things and with the Internet and being able to... to you know, have the keys to all of this information and all of this opportunity, and yet everyone is so caught up in their Facebook and being able to see every little thing that goes wrong, and that's what they focus on. They're focusing on, and you can't flourish if you're going to focus on the negative. And, and life is a self-fulfilling prophecy, and you're going to get what you're going to look for. Look for what works. Look for what's fun. Look for who's interesting. Be like them. Do like them, you know, look at people that you admire, make it happen. And I get that you guys are doing that. I get that you travel the world and meet interesting people and have a fun podcast and I've seen the crew that you're around and I think it's very good that people are listening to you. The other <laughs> thing that I liked is, I just saw a guy, um, he, he's an LA guy, I forgot his name, but he does a, a video blog. And he said, you know, most people retire at the end of their lives and then live their life doing you know, the things that they wanted to do. What the hell? Why not retire for a year or two in the middle of your time, you know, when, you, when you're young? I tell people money depreciates with time. And they're like, what? I said, listen, would you rather have a million dollars when you're 30 or 80 million when you're 80? <laughs> you know, and it's like it, at 80, it's, you know, how attractive healthcare workers can you get you know it's like <laughs> the money is more valuable to you and your fun now yeah you know so so enjoy it love it have fun go out and, and play with it and and for god's sakes don't take it too lightly or too seriously 
you know, and, and, and it's like this, this balance, right? You, you, you don't want to be old and not have any money. You definitely don't want that. But you also can trust yourself to build a life full of interesting experiences. And, you know, the, the, the other one is, is, you know, that internal dialogue, that little voice we have inside of our head. You know, I say to young people, you know that little voice? And they go, no. I go, the one that just said what little voice? That one. <laughs> that internal dialogue. I said, what is that? And they go, that's me. And I said, what if I could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that that little voice is not you? Would that be interesting? And they're like, yeah. I go, okay, listen. It hates to be talked about. But just listen to the little voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's he saying? I've heard this before. All those kind of things. Who's listening? If you were the little voice, you couldn't hear the little voice. You have a little voice. That little voice's job is what I call divine discontent. No matter what you get or what you have, it's going to tell you it could have been different and it could have been better. And why do we have it? Because if we were going to design a human being, a software for a human being, we would want them constantly trying to improve and, and move on and learn and do. Not laying around on a sofa going, yeah, everything's fine all the time. So you have that little, I call it divine discontent. And, and you know you would design a computer you would put that in so they don't so they do something you know so they survive but you just don't have to take it so seriously you can actually dialogue with that little voice like hey you know I'm listening to you but could you give me a break for a while and you can actually I, I actually make agreements with my little voice okay I got it you don't want me to be too lazy okay well if I agree that I won't be too lazy will you just back off well, yeah, okay. okay. You can do it. It works. I know it, it sounds absolutely crazy because it is crazy. But I think this is a strange planet and it requires some very outside-the-box ways of dealing with it. And I believe that dialoguing with your inner voice is powerful. And part of the reason is, is, is that I think we have it totally backwards. And it's a little bit hard to explain, but I think, I think we can do it. We have it backwards. Your conscious is actually unconscious. And your unconscious is actually conscious. Because your conscious isn't conscious of itself. It's, it, it sits inside of your unconscious. So we have it completely backwards. The, 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 it's like on a computer, your conscious is just like the little cursor. It's that little, tiny, insignificant thing that just kind of shows you where you're at at the moment, you know, but what's available, that's this incredible, we call it unconscious, that is conscious of your conscious. And the conscious isn't conscious of itself, because you hear the little voice. And what happens when you try and get in touch with who's listening? It's big and black and empty and can't, can't quite get that one, you know, but that's the mystery. What are you thinking? Uh, that the more I learn about unconscious, the more like amazing it is how much more it knows than I do. Yeah, well, I mean, you're separating yourself from it, right? I, I mean, that's how we talk. I, yeah. I totally get it. Because it's like if you listen to English, it's why we're so fucked up. Yeah. You can listen. To, I can say to you, sometimes I don't understand myself. And you totally get what I'm saying. But I've divided myself into three parts. Yeah. At least, right? I don't understand, comprehend my possessive self. Well, I mean, you know, no wonder we're confused. <laughs> you know, because it's just an electrical chemical reaction inside of our head. 
and we divide it up and try and talk about it because that's how we were raised inside of our culture and our and our upbringing and it seems to make sense because we can nod our heads and go yes that's right yeah I, oh i know just what you, i don't understand myself either <laughs> you know and it's like it makes total sense but it makes really no sense because there is no you there is no me you know when you're looking at me you're seeing particles and beams of light that are reflected off of my skin and because my skin is vibrating at certain frequencies some of it's absorbed and some of it ricochets off and goes into the cornea of your eye where it's turned upside down digitized into your uh, optic nerve and into your brain an electrochemical reaction and when you're listening to me you're not hearing me you're hearing your eardrum with air pushed against it and if I touch you you can't feel me you can only feel your own nerve endings and it's all thrown together and we go oh that's what this is and what makes it true oh, we can get people to agree with us mm -hmm. so I mean even the idea that it's an electrical chemical reaction is an electrical chemical reaction and it's the wildest game in town and, and I think it's exciting and fun and scary and adventuresome and can be desperate at times and you know you worry about loss and you know, people say life is a game, and I think it's true. And when I, when I looked at a game, I said, what makes something a game? What is the lowest common denominator that something can have and still be a game? You wanna guess? Rules. Okay, what well, kind of rules? But you can kind of make up rules as you go, right? So it wouldn't have to have steady rules. A player. Yes, but you can play solitaire, so you do it, right? But you don't need another person. I'll tell you what I came up with. What I came up with is you have to believe you can lose. Hmm. So if I hand you a deck of solitaire cards that's set up for you to win every single time, and I don't tell you, you can play solitaire and it's interesting. Hmm. But if I tell you, I set it up, you're going to win every time. It's no longer a game. So in the game of life, the only thing that makes it interesting is that we think we can lose. Hmm. But if you really look at it, it's like we're eternal spiritual beings who don't live in time and space. That, that, that's all made up stuff, right? And that, then there is no real loss. But we keep forgetting that, you know? When you die, you drop your body, and you know, like you ever really had your body. But it's like it, it, it becomes very, very interesting when you start looking at it like that. There is, there is no real loss. You know, life doesn't really mean anything. Like one day the sun's gonna explode and everyone that's ever been here is gonna be gone. So where does the meaning? The meaning is what you wanna give it, what you, what you wanna put into your life that's gonna make it interesting. You can, it has meaning. But it's, it has meaning because it's meaningful to you. Life itself has no meaning. You can't separate yourself from it. You want, you want one more thing that I memorized that I like? Yes. And then we might want to wrap it up. Yes. It goes like this. Seek above all for a game worth playing, such as the advice from the oracle to modern man. Having found the game, play with intensity. Play as if your life and sanity depend upon it. For in fact, it does depend upon it. Follow the example of the French existentialist and banish a banner bearing the word engagement. Though nothing means anything and all roads are marked exit, move as if your movements had purpose. 
For surely it must be clear even to the most clouded of intelligence that any game is better than no game. But although it is safe to play the master game, this does not serve to make it popular. It still remains the most difficult and demanding of games. And in our society, there are few who play. For modern man, hypnotized by the glitter of his own gadgetry, has little contact with his inner world. It concerns himself mainly with outer, not inner space. But the master game is played entirely in the inner realm, a vast and complex territory about which men know very little. The aim of the game is true awakening, full development of the powers that are latent in man, and can only be played by people who have reached certain conclusions. Namely, that man's ordinary state of consciousness, his so-called waking state, is not the highest level of consciousness of which he is capable. In fact, it is so far from true awakening that it could appropriately be called a form of synambulism, a condition of waking sleep. But once a person has reached his conclusion, they are no longer able to sleep comfortably. For a new appetite has developed within them, the hunger for true awakening. For they realize that they, they hear, see, and know, but a tiny fraction of what they could hear, see, and know. And that in fact they live in the poorest and shabbiest of rooms of their inner dwelling. But they could enter other rooms, beautiful and magnificent, the windows of which look out on eternity and infinity. Here it is sufficient to say that the master game can never be made easy to play, for it demands a person's entire resources, both physical and spiritual. And if you try and get results by unlawful means, you run the risk of destroying your own potential. For this reason, it is better not to embark on the game at all than to play it half-heartedly. The player in today's society lives in a culture which more or less is totally opposed to the aims that he set for themselves and considers its players queer or slightly mad. Thus he confronts great opposition, which could have tendency to bring his game to a halt, except for the fact that the player of the master game must, and I repeat, must remember. <coughs> Without the opposition, there would be no game. And I really want to thank you very much for, for being here, and your, your listening was so incredible, because you were really recreating what I was saying, and I really got that, and it was really an honor to be here with both of you. It's an honor to be gifted all of your wisdoms. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate that. Mm -hmm.